You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. So, this week's episode will start off with a disclaimer, which I think I'm going to have to actually make an official like, disclaimer for this, because I've had a few a few new listeners sort of join us recently, because um, I was in the paper for stuff and things like that, so things have gotten a wee bit, hello new people, hi, because I was, I was in the paper for talking about, you know, people in history deserve to be called by their actual names, especially important female figures from history during Women's History Month. Uh, Gronya, always Gronya. Um, yeah, so that was its own own special thing. So, and people who have been listening to me for a while, you are well-versed in my use of language and my phraseology and everything that I tend to say. So, if you were new here, I want to warn you that I swear like a sailor. I, I I curse, I swear, I use profanity very much. I was going to say like profanity with proclivity. Like, and then I was like, nope, because I keep mixing up that word and mincing on it and it's not working, but it's fine. So yes, and I have a good few things to talk about today. So I actually have to talk about a giveaway at the end of the show because it's going to be a giveaway. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. Is it? Maybe? It should be. Yes, no, promote myself. It's going to be fun and exciting. So we're going to talk about that at the end of the show, where you can meet me. And it's very good. But uh, I should probably give an update as to what I've been doing for the past week and a bit that you haven't heard from me. So I, well, I had the thing for the paper. And then I've got another journalist calling me soon about what I'm currently covering. And yeah, I had... Two meetings with two separate literary agents. 
Um, they want to discuss options and I already had a book in mind but it feels like they don't really feel what I'm doing and that's fine because like worst case scenario I'll just self-publish that one it's I'm not worried but they had some really interesting ideas and options about like where things could go and considering the kind of vein that I'm already in there's some there's some fun ideas floating around oh and people keep like commenting on like videos of mine about something called Steph's packed lunch on like channel four channel five or something I don't know what it is because I work so I don't see it <laughs> but um, I might I might try and watch them on YouTube at some point if I have time I don't watch anything like I'm so behind on so many so many things like I still haven't watched season two of Ted Lasso like that's how far behind watching things I am but anyway because it's because I'm too busy reading and I'm not even reading for pleasure I'm just reading well I say it's not for pleasure because I love history so I mean okay so I am <laughs> I don't read for the sake of reading shall we say I read with a purpose yeah okay good so Long-time listeners will know that there is a very special place in my heart for harlots, hussies, whores, strumpets, and tarts. Oh, love the word strumpet. It's just, it's, it's big in the mouth. You know what I mean? It takes a lot to say it. And I like, I like how it sounds. Uh, there was actually a book I saw that was just called Strumpet. It was, I think it was like an independently published, like local regional story. And I didn't buy it at the time because it was a very expensive book and I didn't have much money on me. But I'm so mad that I didn't because I just, I, I want it. But anyway. There is a special place in my heart for people labelled as such. Regardless of whether they were or not, that... They hold a place dear to me. Also, in addition, furthermore, many of you will be well aware that I, I, I have an agenda. I do. I do. Because stories about men and men's lives, like that is seen as history, just history. And stories about women and their lives is often just pushed to the sidelines. It's specialist specialized it's minuscule it's smaller it's focused and it's unnecessary like quite a lot of the time it's viewed as unnecessary as if half the population don't matter like half of human existence irrelevant like no firstly secondly we always put the concept of men, the idea of men as the important figure and everyone around them are just like, you know, the supporting cast. And this is where I'm bothered, right? So you all know that I covered the six wives of Henry VIII for Women's History Month way back. And I specifically did it because every single time there was any kind of podcast or story or whatever. It was always, you know, a massive amount of focus was on 
Catherine of Aragon, and then a massive focus was on Anne Boleyn. And then the rest of them are kind of smushed together, either in like one episode or like it's very bitty. You know, there wasn't a lot, as if there wasn't enough to tell about their lives. Now, if you're filming like an eight part series, you know, and you're running it chronological, then that makes sense. But if you're doing a podcast or it's literally a six part series, then you have time to focus on the specifics of these women. Because every single one of them deserves to have their story told. And this is where I kind of ended up here. So I was looking up this. And this has been a weird obsession for me for quite a lot of my life. Because I, I, I have, hmm. Okay, so unnatural obsessions, I have a few, clearly. And I have a thing about historical crime and, okay, poisonings, but that's not relevant here. But historical crime is just a passion of mine, especially turn of the century crime. But why turn of the century crime? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'll tell you. You see, my speciality, like my main focus, is actually what I'm an expert in is the rise of sensationalism and the use of print as propaganda in the late modern period. So you really see this like through the Georgian era and then massively through the Victorian era. And it is wild because there's no rules for journalism, really. Like, people just wrote stuff and it didn't need to be fact-checked or anything. There was no, like, guidelines. You could just... It was all about selling. So whoever could sell the most kind of, you know, did the best. And that, that was the aim of the game. So, taking that into consideration and the fact that I meticulously search through records and documents and everything else that goes with it, I really, really wanted to focus on the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper. Because they have the most information on them. I, the other victims will be discussed, but I'm probably going to chat about that on the Patreon or because I don't even think I'm going to have an option for time to do bitty swords. So I think I'm just going to do it over there. But the six wives of Henry VIII, they're only ever seen as important or relevant in connection with Henry VIII. But the Tudor queens, whether, you know, before or after Henry, depending on which queen, you know, mm, mm -mm, the things that happened to them in their lives, the things that they did in their lives, that's just as important as the arse that graces the throne. Like it's, they mattered. I mean, their arse has also graced the throne, but that's not the point. You know what I mean. And here's the thing. The five victims, the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, the five that have been definitely, absolutely attributed to him, although I have I have opinions about one of them, but that's, we'll discuss that later. They're only important, they only matter. The only reason anybody wants to hear anything about them is because they were victims of a serial killer. A serial killer that, you know, is, has never been unmasked. And... People care more about their death than they cared about their lives. 
And that's why I'm here. Because I feel that it's important to understand who these women were. Why they all ended up where they were. And why is the information that has been continuously regurgitated about them? Why is it incredibly incorrect? And why have we been sold this for years? Why have we been falsely told this narrative? Like, why? And why is it such an issue when we want to correct the story and provide the right information and tell their lives? Because the lives of five women should not be less important than the man who murdered them. Like, it's one of the reasons why I I prefer historical crime, historical true crime, to modern true crime. And it's because with modern true crime, because of this wave of popularity, because we, we tend to have an obsession with the macabre and the dark, and especially as a woman, it is a way of protecting yourself because you are aware of everything that can happen to you. It is a very strange... It's a very strange situation, but it is what it is. But the issue is that survivors and the families of victims have to relive trauma and rehear the tales and have people dissect everything. And people who don't want their stories out there, people who have suffered, it's all seen as fair game for like a lot of people and especially individuals who have no proper training or knowledge within like criminology, psychology, sociology, things like that. And they have this love, passion, interest, if you will, in true crime. And so they feel that they have a right to discuss it, you know. At least with historical true crime, you know, everybody has been dead for a while. So I generally don't need to worry about hurting anybody's feelings. And it's a little bit easier to take a critical look when going through documents and understanding information of the time and understanding the bias within it. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, geez, it's been 12 minutes, Katie. Quit your jibber-jabber and fact me. And fact you, I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are Life and Labour of the People in London, Religious Influences, and The Trades of East London by Charles Booth. The London Metropolitan Archives, including the Lambeth Board of Guardians and the Lambeth Princes Road Workhouse, Admissions and Discharges. The Five by Holly Ribbonhold. Jack the Ripper, Just the Facts by Paul Begg. And in Shadows, The Dark Side of the Victorian City by Drew Gray. The Complete History of Jack the Ripper by Philip Sugden. Jack the Ripper, The Definitive Casebook by Richard Whittington Egan. We also have police reports and newspaper articles. We have The Strand, we have The Evening News, we have The Times, we have The Guardians. We also have our old favourites, History.com and Biography.com. Now, I was it uncomfortably good. Then let's begin. Polly Nichols, as she would come to be known, came into this world as Mary Ann Walker 
on the 26th of August, 1845. She is the second child that I know of, of Catherine and Edward Walker. She has an older brother and then I think about three years later, four years later, maybe she has a younger brother. So when, where and why she started being called Polly, I'm not sure, but it seems to be just very much how it was. So we're just going to accept that because that's what she called herself and we're going to move on. So she's the second child and they live just off of Fleet Street. So Fleet Street is basically where all the printing happened. And her father was a blacksmith, Edward. He was a blacksmith, right? And he was the one who made, you know, the bits for the printing press. So it was a very, I wouldn't say like a high, I mean, it is a high skill because smithing is a very complicated skill. So, you know, he earned more money than he would if he was like, like a dock worker or working in a warehouse, anything like that. So he had had skilled labour, you know. But, you know, money's still tight because it's fucking Victorian London and they live in a one room, I don't want to say a house, it's like apartment, a one room building. They have a fireplace in it where they do their cooking they all sleep in the same area. And there's probably a chamber pot in the corner. So they have a pot to piss in, at least. And so everything happens together. They're in a small room. It's not really that big, in fairness. Especially for a family of five. You know, it's cramped. People didn't really know too much about hygiene at the time. You know, it's... Mm, oh, and everyone would get sick. This isn't a time where everyone was just ill. You had, like cholera and dysentery and tuberculosis which is going to become important in a few minutes it would it would have been called consumption at the time so polly grown up she's right off of fleet street and even though they're from the lower class it's not even working class it's i mean it is working class because is what it is but it's the lower working class they're very very poor right but because of where they were and because, you know, the church is around doing the, the teaching thing. Both Polly and her brother were sent to school. And schooling doesn't become compulsory, I think, to like the 1970s or something like that. It's a long time before kids actually legally have to go to school. Especially girls, like, you know, boys, sure. So unlike a lot of people at the time, or a lot of girls at the time, I should say, Polly could read and write, which is massive you know it's a it's a skill a life skill but it wasn't everybody who was in her social class would have so she learns to read and write it's all good and she's in school for a good while but when she turns seven years old polly ends up becoming the woman of the house she has to run the household because her mum gets sick starts off as a cough And as we know now, many of us who have survived a pandemic, as if it's gone away, hasn't it still around us? But, you know, sometimes a cough is indicative of something much worse. And this was. Because what started off as regular coughing turned into coughing blood. Because Catherine Walker had consumption, otherwise known as tuberculosis. And again, people didn't really know how it spread. So her younger brother, who I think was about three at the time, not long after 
their mom dies. Her younger brother dies too. Because women, you know, they were the primary caretakers. Men were supposed to go out and work. That was their job. Like their purpose was to provide for the family and the women were supposed to take care of the household. That was their full purpose. So they go and do that. And, well, the mum's looking after the wee fella. They both die, I think, within a very short period of each other. I think it's only a few months, if I remember correctly. So Polly. Polly ends up having to be the woman of the household. She has to do the cooking, the cleaning, the darning, you know, all the general stuff. But here's the funny thing. She doesn't have to just do that. Because she's basically looking after her dad and her older brother. But she is still sent to school. So she still gets schooling up until, I think, maybe 11, 12. So she's still getting an education as much as her brother is. Now, as she gets older, she really has to take on more duties at home. I mean, not that she isn't already doing them. But she's running the household. And then... When she turns 18, she catches the eye of a handsome, round-faced, printer's machinist. Machinist? Machinist? One of those is correct. I'm not sure which one. Sometimes I read words and I don't know how to pronounce them. So, someone will correct me, I'm not sure who. So they get married. He proposes, uh, what was it, December... 1863 so it's just before Christmas he proposes to her so clearly they've been courting for a while because it's the done thing you can't just randomly marry I mean you could randomly marry a person I suppose but it was the done thing to court and to you know ask permission from the father so he proposes she says yes and then they get married in January 1864 and they have two witnesses to their wedding you know simple affair they get married it's all good And then he moves in to their family home. So Polly, she's looking after the household. And then you have three adult men who are working and bringing an income in. So they're actually doing pretty well. I mean, not amazing because obviously, you know, but they're, they're working. You've got income coming in and she's, you know, doing her bit. But it doesn't really stay the four of them for long. So, what was it, like, a couple months into getting married, she falls pregnant, like, pretty quickly. And, like, for all intents and purposes, this is a very, very typical Victorian family setup. They get married, you know, there's in-laws. At one point, the brother gets married and moves away. And so it's just Polly, her dad, and her husband. And fairly quickly... You know, especially when you consider, you know, that, you know, biologically, it's not actually that easy to get pregnant. It's not easy. You're only fertile for like so many days. And when you consider, you know, the health issues that they would have in that era, you know, silent miscarriages were a thing or are a thing that we just don't really talk about either. But yeah, so within, within a few months of getting married, she's pregnant and she gives birth to their first son, first child, Edward John, and that's the following year. Unfortunately, as is the way with many, many infants in this time period, 
He only lives to be, I think, a year and nine months and he passes away. Which I don't care who you are, infant loss, child loss of any kind is fucking horrific. And something that we actually have absolutely no information of is Polly's mental state. So we don't know if she suffered from postnatal depression or anything like that, which very well could be the case when you consider her actions later on. So, but we know that way back when, or even as far as 10, 20 years ago, nobody was discussing this, or at least no people in authority were discussing this. It wasn't accepted, it wasn't allowed to be discussed, you know? As far as Polly was concerned, her duty as a Victorian woman, her duty as a woman in at all, was to marry and have children. She was supposed to raise a family, she was supposed to get married, fall in love, have babies, raise those babies. That was her duty, that was what was expected of her. She was to do that for her husband and to God and to everything else in between. And to not be that, it was basically sin incarnate which is absolutely disgusting, but it is what it is. So, over time, their family grows. So they have, I think, four more children. Yeah, no, I'm wrong. Three more children. So they have three more children. And with each child, the two wage packets that are coming in are uh, getting pretty slim getting just thinner and thinner over the years and again we have absolutely zero fucking information about Polly's mental state throughout this so they have three more children Percy George in 1868 Alice Esther in 1870 Eliza Sarah in 1877 so Three children together, and I can only assume, I can only assume that in the years between 1870 and 1877, that there was definitely miscarriages happening. Because for a married couple, especially in Victorian era, to go seven years without producing any children, there's got to be something. It could have been... There could have been a number of reasons, really. It could be their health for either party. Um, it could just be that she started to become aware of when she was fertile. She could have studied it up, hymns to say. But it's just a very strange thing that they weren't conceiving during this time. I mean, there could be, there's a bunch of reasons why people don't conceive, you know, A lot of people don't have their periods because of an entire smorgasbord of reasons, including but not limited to stress, malnutrition, ill health. You know, all of these are factors. And let's face it, you're a woman in Victorian London. Chances are you're going to be a wee bit stressed. I mean... You have a pot to piss in, but it's in the corner of the room. So, like, they are stretched thin. But luckily for them, 
a lifeline is on the way. So was, there was this American philanthropist, we'll say philanthropist, he was a businessman. And basically, things hadn't gone too well for him. There was a situation, we call it the Trent disaster, I'll cover it in another episode. But with regards to Britain, he wasn't really popular due to this situation. Right? And he also, you know, felt like he wanted to give something back, coincidentally, to his adopted city of London. And his board of trustees, who were also suffering from the Trent affair, agreed with this. So when he passed away, he had this agreement because he had no heirs or anything. There was nobody to contest. There was nobody to, you know, take the money. He wanted to invest and build these properties in London for the poor, to house the poor. You know, so, uh, how do I put this? Uh, you know, the poor, but people who weren't, like, too poor, but people that were, like, oh, poor-ish. And who were, like, good poor. Like, low class, but worthy of, you know, better treatment. The deserving poor. Okay. The Peabody buildings were this lifeline, this step, this opportunity for a better life for the Nichols. So, in order to get, you know, into the Peabody buildings, in order to be allowed entry into them, you had to be, you know, poor, but you had to be working. You had to earn money, but not too much and not too little. You had to be able to afford to still live there. You had to have a family, but not too big a family, because you had to be responsible, even though they don't believe in birth control because they're all, like, really into Jesus and stuff. But whatever, it's fine. You had to be clean and helpful and kind and respectable and sober. So, like, if you were, um, you know, doing dodgy dealings on the side, if you had any criminal history, you know, you would automatically be like, nope. You would get inspected. So somebody would show up at their house, which they would then, they would have cleaned up and they would have had themselves all dressed all nice. Probably in their Sunday best because, like, that's, that's, they probably only had like one good outfit each. If that, the Peabody people, they would come in, they would have a chat with them, they would look at this shack. I say shack. It's not a shack, it's a fucking building, but it's, you know, one room and there's a hearth and it's not great, you know. Although I think at this point they're like in a two-room building or whatever. So when they they get accepted and they get moved into the Peabody buildings, which is like a lap of luxury in comparison. So they went from living in this just very mm, less than hygienic sort of option to living in a building which had a stove. So no more cooking on the fire. It had working toilets, which again, used to piss in a pot in the corner, you know, so you don't have the smell of urine and feces like wafting through the air. They had several rooms. It meant that parents didn't have to share room with their children. People could get like a wee bit of privacy, which is nice. It's nice. So when they moved into the Peabody buildings, they were paying, I think, what was it? Five shilling, nine pence. Like that was the rent, which, you know, uh, I wouldn't mind paying that now, to be honest. <laughs> a buyer's market, anyone? No, it's fine. So anyway, 
they move into the Peabody buildings and there's rules. You know, you can't have the children running through the corridors. There can't be like leeriness, loudness. Everyone has to act with some decorum. Everyone has to have like a high level of cleanliness. Everybody's going to be clean. Everyone's going to be respectful. And so they had, they had baths downstairs in I think the basement of the buildings. And I mean, they were cold baths, but they could wash every single day if they wanted. Now, some enterprising young person might think, hmm, I can make some money out of this and do some like laundry work out of these baths. But if you were caught doing that, you would be kicked out of the Peabody buildings. And in these tenement buildings for the Peabody worthies, there would be a superintendent. So the superintendent would keep a watchful eye and a watchful ear out. That's right, earwigs in the rhubarb, right? You know, just to make sure everybody was following the Peabody rules. So if you were, well, there's a fuck ton of reasons you would get kicked out, right? So if you were dirty, like if your hygiene wasn't at an appropriate level that they deemed, you know, out you go. If you were having improper relations, if your circumstances changed, if you decorated your, um, like, rooms. Like, some, some of the Peabody buildings had, like, little rails so that you could hang pictures, like, on them. But, like, most of them you weren't allowed to put pictures up. You weren't allowed to, like, decorate in any way. I mean, I know these people are poor, but poor people are still allowed to have nice things, you know? If you were caught doing, like, side businesses, if you were... You know, doing any dodgy dealings if you were drunk. Like, if if members of your family died, you could be moved or you could be kicked out. Like, there's just a smorgasbord of issues. So they move into the four-room tenement building. And, again, they've got a stove, they've got toilets, they've got baths. Like, they could wash every single day if they want to. I mean, the water is cold. But it is just several, like, it's not even steps. It's a fucking ladder above where they were, you know? <clears throat> so, you know, things are strained, obviously, because, you know, there's a woman looking after the family. Chances are, I mean, if this is a traditional Victorian family, he's not really helping out. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. All of the childcare that's being thrown on Polly. Because her purpose, as a Victorian woman, was to take care of the children. And William, his whole thing was to provide financially. Like, that's his job as a husband, right? But over the years, things get strained because they have, what, how many kids now? They have... There are three kids and I still, something is going on that they did not have kids for seven years, right? I'm just saying, clearly there was already some issues there. I don't know what they were. Was it malnutrition? Was it illness? Was it, hmm, whatever it was, right? Was it him? Was he out doing stuff he shouldn't have been doing? Him's to say. But for seven years, they don't have kids. But they've got three now. And over their time there in the Peabody buildings, you know, they're struggling with what they have. And Polly becomes pregnant again. 
So they have to move because they're just like, it's just not working for them financially. They need to downsize. So they end up downsizing and moving into a three-room tenement next to the Vidler family. So the Vidlers are a widow and I think her four daughters, one of whom is married. Like they're all teenagers, I think, at this point. And Rosetta, her oldest daughter, she married a ship's cook who sailed from Glasgow and was like, don't worry, it won't be long. Uh, It was long. So Rosetta is married, but her husband's off somewhere else. So she's estranged. And maybe she's lonely. Maybe, you know, married life isn't what it's meant to be. And her and her mother, they're both working as charwomen, which is like, just grueling work. So when their neighbours move in and Polly needs assistance with, you know, being heavily pregnant and having several small children, the Viddlers step in to help. And it's very much, you know, community. It's very much family. I mean, isn't it good to have such kind, kind neighbours? So, like, they're helping out. You know, the doors are always open. You know, there's movement between these two. A little bit too much movement, if you will. Because Rosetta, this young, you know, forlorn, just young woman, is spending quite a lot of time with William Nichols. And, mm, and the Nichols marriage starts to break down. Now, William says it's because of Polly's drinking. But Polly's father says it's because he, William, was having an affair with Rosetta. Now, her father also says that William had an affair previously. But William denies this, obviously, because he is a respectable Victorian man. And, hmm, was Polly drinking? Quite possibly, quite probably. Was William having an affair? Oh no, he was definitely having an affair. He says the affair didn't, like, the relationship didn't occur until after they had separated, but, mm mm-hmm. It's, mm mm-hmm, sure. Sure, honey, sure. So, the way I see it is two things can be true at once, you know? If there was an affair, if there was a relationship burgeoning between, you know, your husband and this young you know, neighbour, you know, you're struggling, you're the main caretaker for these children. And for all we know, she had some form of depression and she is supposed to shut up and just deal with it, right? And so, in a twist that will surprise absolutely fucking nobody, Polly and William, they start having marital spats. Like, things aren't going well in the home. To the point that their arguments cause her to leave. So she leaves and she would head over to her brother or her father. Who would then tell her to basically suck it up and go back. Because like you're a wife, you're a mother, this is your responsibility. Off you go. Right? And off she would go returning back to her unfaithful husband. Now imagine this. Like you have worked hard to be... The epitome of what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be a wife. You're supposed to be a mother. You have spent your life caring for family. You've cared for your father and your brother and your husband and your children. And now your husband is shagging the next door neighbour. 
and you have gone to the only family you have left asking them for help and they tell you to go back to the situation where you are suffering. Let's take that into consideration for a moment. Because she is in a very unhappy home life. She is being treated like shit. And we don't know if she was suffering postnatal depression or any kind of postpartum issues. We don't know if she had any physical issues, like if she had cuts or stitches or anything like that. We know none of it because why would women's health need to be recorded? Hmm? Yeah, why the fuck? So, she is suffering, she's in a horrific situation, and it gets to the point where she just can't take it anymore. And she does the only thing she can do, which is leave the Peabody buildings for good. Which means, not only is she leaving her husband, but she has to leave her children. And this is the thing. Like, Victorian times, just because the way the divorce laws were just so fucking cruel it was very difficult if not impossible for a woman to get a divorce like men could get divorced if um, well one if they could afford it it's all about you know if you're rich fine and men could get a divorce on the grounds of adultery alone just once just one count of adultery right their wife could just have one dalliance and done Women, on the other hand, needed adultery and another thing. So there needs to be adultery plus abuse. Adultery plus bestiality. You know, like there's, yeah, like there had to be this plus this because it had to be more difficult for women because of course it did. Of course it did. And under, you know, Victorian law, she did not have custody, guardianship, ownership, if you will, of the children. The children belonged to the husband. So even if she had taken them with her, he could claim them back. Like, and even if she had taken her children with her, how would she support them if it was an option? How could she support them? She relied on William's income and, yeah, wage gap? Of course there was a fucking wage gap. Of course there was. So, during this era, it all work was deliberately, was deliberately designed to pay women less than men so that women could become, you know, part of the household to be good wives and mothers and men could do the earning. Like, that was it. So, even if she was busting her ass, you know, out working, she wouldn't have earned enough to support all of her children. And we do have to take into consideration the fact that she might have a drinking problem. Probably does have a drinking problem because, you know, it's a depressing era, you're struggling, alcohol is a crutch, and alcoholism is a fucking disease. So yeah, you know, it's it's not, it's not the best way of things, you know? So she does the only thing she can do, which is enter the Lambeth workhouse. Now, the workhouse exists, Basically, as a last resort, no one wants to enter a workhouse and everything surrounding the workhouse just amplifies that. Like, it is designed to humiliate and embarrass and everything else that goes with that. Like, when she comes in, she's questioned. Like, she's asked if her children are legitimate, which is designed to just upset 
and embarrass her. Like, that's the point. It's supposed to make her feel like absolute shit. Because apparently, going into the workhouse isn't bad enough. Sorry for this turn of phrase, but they felt like sticking the knife in and twisting it. So she had to go to the workhouse in order to receive maintenance from William. Because she had to go and claim that she was a deserted wife. And one of the things she claims is that her husband had an affair. And the way it works is, you know, the guardians, the Lambeth guardians, so she's in the Lambeth workhouse and the Lambeth guardians, you know, they would pay her maintenance and then they would go to William and go, give us the five shillings or whatever, right? Gimme, gimme, gimme. So he would be forced to do that, but he is, you know, he's raising the children. Well, he's got Rosetta now doing the physical raising. She's there. And, you know, financially, things aren't great. And then on top of that, due to the situation, William is forced to move out of the Peabody buildings and into, like, another, like, abode. He moves somewhere else, right? Him, Rosetta, and the kids. And I think him and Rosetta go on to have their own children after this as well, which are, fun fact, illegitimate. And they start acting, you know, they start acting like man and wife. But, you know, legally they're not because they cannot remarry because he's not divorced. You know, it's not an option. And yeah, Victorian society really did not look favourably upon that type of relationship because it's not, you know, it's not under God. It's not like legal. You know, it's just, just dodgy all round. It's 1881 and Polly is in the Lambeth workhouse and then by May of that year she leaves because uh, she's getting her maintenance from William so she's staying in like boarding houses things like that but in 1882 like early 1882 she is back through the gates of Lambeth workhouse and it's not long after her return there that William ceases his payments to her so I mean, let's face it, he's got his, you know, his new wife-ish, wife light, diet wife, whatever you want to call her, his new partner, who has then taken over the caretaking duties of raising his children, maybe having a few more. So he is, you know, supporting that household, but he also has to pay his five shillings for Marianne Nichols, Polly, his estranged wife. He doesn't want to do that. So he hires a private investigator. Like, these were all over the papers of the day, right? And their whole job was to, you know, prove that the wife was doing something illicit and therefore he no longer had to pay. Like, that was the thing. And so he follows Polly and he says that, you know, that she's she's in a relationship with a man. So this private investigator, this spy... He reports that she's living with um, George Crawshaw and I think like the 1881 census also backs us up. So like he's like a scavenger, she's working in a laundry. Like that's their whole thing. That's what they're doing. And well, yeah. So the relationship does fizzle out and she ends up returning to the workhouse in 1882. Now, the thing about this is this is considered adultery because even though you know, they're separated, they're not legally divorced. So because she's not legally divorced from William, the fact that she is residing with another man is considered adultery. And even though William is living with another woman, 
and treating her as his wife, his common-law wife, that's not taken into question here at all. But because this is seen as adulterous, he no longer has to pay because she is seen as immoral. Because women always get judged more harshly than men. Kel surprise. It's almost if uh, some things haven't actually fucking changed. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. If you enjoy bizarre true stories, then the Useless Information Podcast is the podcast for you. For example, did you know that author Robert Louis Stevenson gave his birthday away? Or that there was a football team that played for six years before someone realized that the school never, ever existed? Or that a dog in upstate New York was once placed on trial for murder? Well, to hear these and hundreds of additional fascinating true stories from the flip side history, be sure to check out the Useless Information Podcast. That's the Useless Information Podcast podcasting worldwide since 2008 and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to check it out. So, William, he sees his payments and the guardians are like, why are you not paying money anymore? And he gets called forth and he tells them, you know, she's doing this, she's doing that, she's living with a man. Polly comes forward, she goes, I'm not living with anybody because I'm in the workhouse. Like, I am here how could i be with someone when i am in a workhouse like what if i was living with someone why the fuck would i come back here i mean she probably said it nicer than that but yeah but you know this is a man his word obviously carries more weight than hers does so they go yeah sure absolutely no problem william you're correct you don't have to pay her any money anymore so she's in the workhouse for the rest of the year Um, and then leaves in about 1883 and she goes and lives with her father who is no longer living with her brother he's in his own place so she moves and with him and Polly Polly's drinking right and she's got some friends and she kind of gets a bit aggressive because alcohol exacerbates things in us it does so she's hanging out with friends and she can get loud and leery and aggressive She's not going around with any men. Like, that's not a thing she's doing. There's no reports of her being with men. There's no instances of her looking for, you know, male company in any aspect, whether just for her own comfort or, like, business-wise. Nothing. Nothing at all. But her drunkenness and her dependency on alcohol and her aggression... It all comes to a head where she has a fight with her dad and she just leaves. She goes out the door. Wait, no, no, no. She moves in with her dad in 83 and moves out in 84. And when she leaves, she basically goes from one man to another. And it sounds bad, but it's like she leaves her father's household and she moves in with a widower, Thomas Stuart Drew. So he's lost his wife. He requires someone to care for his children. Enter Polly. And for the next couple years, 
things seem to be going pretty well for Polly. You know, there's no reports of drunkenness or aggression or abuse or anything. You know, she seems in a fairly stable relationship. She's not, you know, using alcohol as a crutch as far as we know. I mean, she might still be, but, you know, she's definitely, you know, healthier. She's cleaner. You know, there's nothing going on. And, I mean, there's probably a wee bit of that. I want to call it Christian Victorian guilt because, you know, she's technically living in sin. Um, which is probably not great for either of them, but it is what it is. And it's, you know, at least comfortable for the two of them. But then, uh, as as is the way tragedy strikes, and her brother dies in May 1886, in what I can only describe as a freak accident. You know, um, a paraffin lamp, he goes to like put it out, and it just explodes and he burns to death her brother edward is just (sighs) flambéed now i don't know if you've ever seen a burnt body it is a very unpleasant sight and if they did have an open casket like mm, that's gonna cause that's gonna cause some nightmares for just everybody involved and on top of that as well You have to consider the fact that for most of her life, since she was seven years old, she helped care for her brother. Like, they were close. Her brother's death hits Polly really fucking hard. And even though she had been managing her drinking, she had been, you know, controlling her condition to the best of her abilities, once her brother's untimely demise happens, yeah, she hits the bottle hard and she's drinking she is fighting you know and her relationship with thomas drew just crumbles and by november i'm not sure if she leaves or he kicks her out but their relationship is no more but the very next month he gets married the widower finds a new bride because that's just how things go isn't it like Thomas gets himself a legal wife, so he's, you know, legally fine and also, you know, according to God, doing okay, because he's not living in sin. And Polly, well, she has nowhere else to go. I mean, she, she could have gone back to her dad, but he's grieving. She is grieving. And maybe returning back just wasn't an option for her mentally and yet again november 1886 she steps through the gates of the lambeth workhouse luckily for polly though she was only really there a month before she was quote unquote discharged for service to where who the hell knows we don't we don't have that information guess it wasn't important so like a lot of places they would hire women out from the workhouse because you know They had transferable skills. They could clean things, they could sew things, they knew how to look after babies. And a lot of employers would, you know, pay the least amount possible and would overlook the fact that these were the scum of society, if you will, because, you know, that's how the Victorians saw people from the workhouse. This is, you know, the unworthy. Good thing we don't treat people like that now, huh? Mmm. So yeah, she ends up leaving going into some kind of service 
which was it was initially a thing they used to do for the younger girls but at some point the middle-aged people were sent in too probably just because they wanted them out and you know money people just like money and probably thought these women were down on their luck you know they're more likely to take the crappier options which you know not entirely incorrect and between then and may 1887 we don't know anything about where polly was or what she was doing but she just cannot be dealing with the workhouse she just can't go through it again i mean remember it's designed to be awful it's designed to be humiliating and she decides her best option is to sleep rough and so she becomes a vagrant a tramp if you will she is a tramp but we love her and so she's out you know doing what vagrants did in the day they would get day work they would get you know pittance they would beg like the amount of beggars like in london at the time compared to other like logged criminal pursuits shall we say like there were like four or five six times the amount of beggars than anything else but because of police attitudes at the time really you say police attitudes being adverse to human existence (laughs) perhaps you know anyone who was deemed you know one of the ills of society they could be labeled anything it was up to the officer to just decide up until the point where they accused the wrong person and then they had to be a teeny weeny bit more careful you know not unlike the cops having to wear body cams today but i'm just saying so she ends up sleeping rough and well she gets known um she gets arrested in trafalgar square so basically there's this big you know clear out they want to get rid of all the tramps the vagrants the beggars they want to get rid of everything because this is the respectable area in london we can't be having that so there's this massive attempt at clear out and obviously a riot happens there's a brawl and one of the worst people in it is polly 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 does not go willingly to the cells like she gets referred to as like the worst woman on the square because she's aggressive right that's why so over time like all of polly's sort of noted like police encounters it's all to do with like drunken disorderly you know hurling abuse being aggressive it's all it's like asbo she's like got an asbo you know that's what she's doing consistently polly's got an asbo (laughs) there is no record of her soliciting like there are no records of her selling her body there are no reports of her prostituting herself polly the prostitute doesn't exist nothing nothing is there so she ends up back in the workhouse in december because you know london is bloody cold there's snow and ice and you know nobody wants frostbite so she ends up having to go back into the workhouse which you know not super fun because there's barely enough food to survive on you know it's not exactly clean people are often attacked by rats in the workhouse which is supposed to be the safe place and they're being eaten by one part of the perpetrators of the plague 
But I digress. That being said, if you run through Whitechapel now, you will actually see rats in all the alleyways. I speak from personal experience, but that's just London, and it like, I think technically in any city you're no less than like three meters away from any rat, as far as I know. Like, there's always one around. You're always within one moose of a rat. But Polly spends Christmas at the workhouse and then gets sent away because they're like, we're not really sure if you're part of this parish, so mm-hmm, bye. So she gets sent to the Holborn workhouse, who then send her back to Lambeth. They're like, no, no, this is your problem. So when she does go back to the Lambeth workhouse, she is presented with another work opportunity because a middle-class family are in need of a maid. The Caudrys were Baptists, they were good Christian people, and they believed in helping the less fortunate, so they applied to get a maid from the workhouse. And this would be the only servant they had. But they were a respectable couple, and they were teetotal. So for Polly, she felt like this was a better opportunity for her because there was no alcohol. And, you know, if there isn't the temptation there then maybe things will work out better for her. So she gets hired in like May and because she is hired by a respectable middle-class family, she is given bonnets and dresses and a change of outfit because, you know, your maid can't always wear the one same thing. You're respectable. She might have even had two changes of clothes, which was just like a lot for Polly at this point. She would have had aprons and shoes and all the other stuff that goes with it, right? She would have had all that. But she is the only servant for this couple and they weren't always at this abode. But when they were there, she was accompanying them to like mass and church and she was studying the Bible and she was writing to her father with whom she had not really spoken to, I think, since her brother's funeral, as far as I know. And she is hopeful for this, this opportunity. She thinks things are going to go well for her But she spends two months there and she is lonely. She has no one to talk to. She has nothing. And no offence, but consistently reading the Bible doesn't really seem like a super fun time. And by July, Polly abscons. She gets the heck out of Dodge. Polly says, fuck this for a game of soldiers. And she leaves with her, like, her bonnets and her dresses and a bunch of stuff that she could pawn, like goods, like candlesticks and all that kind of shit. She takes it and she gets, she gets out. She's gone. And she ends up back in London. And it's 1888. And she's staying in boarding houses, lodging houses. But she is staying in women's only lodging houses. Like, um, she tends to split a double bed with, I think, Nellie, her name is. The only person whom you could consider a friend to her at this point. And according to the woman she's sharing a room with, Polly is still pretty fond of drink, right? She is. It's her crutch. She's an alcoholic. And they sold gin by the pint. The pint! Imagine drinking a pint of gin. Also, gin makes girls cry, so like, mmm. Says me who loves gin. (laughs) Fucking love gin. So over the course of the next few months, Polly's money is running thin. And by the 30th of August, 
she doesn't have, was it the, whatever, the four shillings or however much it was, to stay in the, in the boarding house. So Polly had been at the pub and she goes to try and get her room at Wilmot's, but she doesn't have the money. And so she gets sent away. And according to, you know, the person who ran the lodging house, she states that Polly, you know, said, oh, of course I'll get my DOS money. What a jolly bonnet I have. Or, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically it. And it is this phrase which people use to kind of, you know, ascertain that Polly was a prostitute, right? You know, even though it's more likely that either A, she was planning to pawn the bonnet, or B, she was looking to beg and just seem like a more worthy beggar because she had such a pretty bonnet, right? So Polly is worse for wear and probably around about half two in the morning, she is seen by Nellie, who tries to convince her to come home with her. But Polly is absolutely sloshed and she's not going anywhere. Now, let's take a few things into consideration before we continue this tale. This is a woman who, up until this point, has had zero reports of soliciting. Zero. She specifically stayed in women's boarding houses. She didn't lodge in the mixed ones. She deliberately tried to stay places that were women only. So she wasn't exactly searching for male company. On top of that, if she was out looking to sell sex, if she was doing this on a regular basis, why the fuck was she staying in a boarding house? Why would she be struggling to cover that money? Because if you're doing this on the regular, you're going to have more money. On top of that, one of the things they would do at the time is there was, like like a motel, you could rent a room and women would often find a john and go stay there. So they had a warm bed for the night. So by two o'clock in the morning, that's where she should have been. Her being out on the street doesn't make sense if she was soliciting. Also, in addition, furthermore, the fact she's in Whitechapel, like, that in itself is... It just doesn't fucking add up. There is no money in Whitechapel. If she was looking to, to like, sell herself, why would she be in the empty streets in the middle of the night? Why wouldn't she be in the busy areas where, you know, wealthy men are out looking for a fun time? Like, why isn't she there? It doesn't, doesn't add up. None of it makes sense. But there she is, a woman who is used to sleeping rough and is drunk as a fucking skunk, right? So Nellie tries to convince her to go home with her. She's like, oh, no, fine, it's fine, no, bye, right? Off she pops. Nellie gives up and goes, goes, goes home, goes to the lodging house, goes to be safe for the night. Because Polly is convinced that Wilmots aren't going to let her in. And Nellie, you know, she offers to cover the cost, but Polly, Polly isn't used to consideration or kindness. And she's just stubborn at this point, I think, because when you're drunk and you have an idea in your head, you're, you're kind of there. You know, there's no real pushing one way or the other with it. And Wilmots was the only place she wanted to be anyway. She didn't want to have to go and stay in a mixed place, which... She didn't feel comfortable 
She didn't like being in a a mixed area for her to sleep in because, I mean, it, let's face it, wasn't the safest. It wasn't for her. She preferred to be with women and just be, you know, protected and safe and not have to deal with men for whatever reason. She just didn't want to be dealing with that. I, I get it. I get it. But she is drunk as a skunk, she is sloshed, she is pie-eyed, and she just... She must just be exhausted at this point. So at some point during the night, off she walks. Well, off, off she stumbles, actually, down towards Whitechapel Road. And as she goes, she ends up in Bucks Row. And there's, like, this gated stable entrance... Because Polly, not a stranger to sleeping rough, finds herself a corner in which to rest. Back braced against the wall, curled down, scrunched over. Like anyone who's ever had to sleep rough, they'll tell you there are ways to make it, I mean, not comfortable, but less awful. Also, she's full of gin, so it's less sleeping and more being unconscious. All she needs is somewhere for her body to just shrink down and rest. Plus, she's only five foot two. You know, she's she's small. She doesn't take up a lot of space. And this is where the crime of opportunity occurs. Someone comes up behind her. Slits Polly's throat. Uh, the early hours of the 31st of August. After reading through criminologist reports and the autopsy notes, and this is someone who has obsessively, like, wanted to be a reparologist. Like, that was a thing. As a child, I was like, I need to be this. Although I don't know what person thought, hey, let's let a child read about these creepy, gruesome murders. That's a good idea. Gentle listener, it was not a good idea. But yes... I have been obsessing over this for literal decades. Decades. And after just reevaluating all of the information, it makes more sense that she was unsuspectingly got from behind. Because whoever did this to her did not want a fight. Because this is a hardy Victorian woman, and as we know, Polly. Polly's not one to be a shrinking violet. Polly will punch you in the face. You know, she's she's wee, but she will come at you. She is a pocket rocket and she will she will beat you like you owe her money, right? So whoever did this deliberately chose a sleeping woman and then did horrifically gruesome things to her body. I'm not going to describe the attack on her because, you know, you can look that up anywhere. You can find how many stab wounds, you can find out where, you can find out the way in which she was gutted. Which, honestly, appears more like a butcher, just with the quickness it would have had to have been, because, you know, the time frame, it's, this is, this is a quick, a quick go. And then her body was displayed in a manner to humiliate, because that's, That's what that kind of killer does. It was about humiliation. But Polly 
definitely wasn't the first victim. Because this is... This is an escalation. Nobody starts off with, you know, disemboweling. Like, that is not the first step. You lead up to disemboweling. But because violence against women wasn't really seen as a big deal in the Victorian era, and some could argue even now, that it wasn't either reported or acknowledged. And this... Like, this is definitely not the first one. And there she was. So who came before? What led to this? Like, there's no signs of of actual, like, sexual assault on Polly. Like, there's none of that. So whoever did this, did this because they wanted to murder a woman. Because again, literally no evidence to suggest that she was a sex worker. Literally none. It's only when the police officer is called forward and he's standing, or constable, or whatever the fuck he was, standing over her body, he goes, yep, definitely a prostitute. When William Nichols is brought forward, he comes forth and goes, yeah, my wife was never a prostitute, estranged or no, adulterous, perhaps. Yes, obviously, that's why I didn't pay her money. But soliciting? No, not a thing. Like, no one suggests this. It's... Here's the thing as well. I just want to add this in. It's like, the deputy who, you know, sent her away from the lodging house, the boarding house. Like, they've had the police show up and go, you sent this woman away, and now this woman has been murdered in this very violent, very horrific, this ripper way, because at the time... That kind of, like, slaying was referred to as, like, a ripper killing because you ripped through the skin. Like, that was, you ripped through the flesh. That's, that was just the term at the time. Anyway. So, she had been slain in this, again, worst possible way ever. And you sent her away. You know, is you know, and and obviously you're gonna try and say things to big up yourself and make yourself seem like the respectable person, and make her seem like a less than worthy victim. You know, I remember reading all of these sort of notes and and uh, <laughs> stay away from the chat rooms, and read it and everything, and it's all like she brought this upon herself. She did this, and it's this concept of like the less dead. So, like, the lower down the rungs of society you are, the less worthy you are as a human. And as a result, your death is irrelevant. I mean, that's how Jeffrey Dahmer got away with stuff for so long. Because his victims were seen as the less dead. But I digress. So, it seems to me that this whole jolly bonnet statement, I mean, it could be true. It could have been taken out of context. But it seems to me that it exists as a way of just exonerating, like, the deputy of, of, you know, sending this woman away to her death. And to vilify and degrade and demean Polly, Mary Ann Nichols, Polly Nichols, was murdered on the 31st of August, 1888. And her body was put on display 
For what reason? There could be any number of reasons. And her truly awful death? It is just the culmination. It is the result of a full lemony snicket. I mean, this is a full series of unfortunate events which led to this. From society's perception of women. Because she was seen as less than worthy because she was a woman who was not with a husband. Wasn't taking care of her kids. Like, she had been to the workhouse. She had lived on the streets. So clearly, she wasn't acting in a manner befitting the proper Victorian lady. She was unworthy. She was less dead. And it is one policeman's assumption which has led to, you know, just the demeaning and degrading and the vilifying and misrepresentation of all of these victims, starting with Polly. And for whatever reason, nobody ever wants to discuss that. No one wants to go back into that and maybe assess why this perception was the way it was or why we so full wholeheartedly agree with it. And why when that's challenged, like, people are up in arms about it. Polly Nichols lived a difficult fucking hard life like so many women in the Victorian era which resulted in her being in the wrong place at the wrong time and being slaughtered for it because apparently destroying her life wasn't enough the papers, the police the Victorian society decided to destroy her character as well. I'm not saying she was a perfect human by any stretch of the imagination. It doesn't mean that she deserves the label that was put upon her after death. And again, as I've said before and I'll say it again, I don't see why the lives of five women are deemed as less important than the mystery man who ended them. And so ends the tale of Polly Nichols. Uh, If you, jeez, I hate saying this, if you liked this episode, please rate and review five stars. Um, It's, if just, you can say anything. It doesn't matter what you say in like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anything like that. It doesn't matter what you say. Like you could say anything. You could tell me your favourite recipe or your favourite superhero or your favourite women in history, you know? Or why you don't care who Jack the Ripper was. You can say any of that. Or, if you want, you can just say nice things. Compliments. I mean, I could say it's not about ego, but, you know, it's it wouldn't hurt. I'm just saying. But yeah, you can follow me on social media as well. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Twitter. Uh, all of the links are down below. If you haven't done the advertising survey, I know it's really annoying, but can you just... It's in the show links. Go do that. If you're an advertiser and you want to advertise with me, um, host red ads, also, link is in the description down below. Now, back to the important serious stuff also. I am playing a gig this month in Letterkenny, so if you are in Donegal or Ireland and you want to come see me, tickets are on Eventbrite, link in the description down below. I know, I know, it's almost as if it's consistent. If you are, uh, you know, in the... 
middle of, I need to get a map and look at it because I'm going to be in Kansas for the Heartland Pagan Festival. I'm going to be there. It's going to be awesome. I'm doing workshops and talks and a live episode. Woohoohoo! Also, there's going to be more stuff happening on Patreon. Again, down below, show notes. It's all there. I really need to upgrade my website, but finding time with everything else has been difficult, but I will get to it. I promise, everyone, I promise. And um, my laptop has almost died three times while recording this, so... <laughs> Patreon.com slash whodidwhatnowpod. I'm fairly certain, is it? It's in the description. Don't worry about it. Go link. But, yes, I am in Kansas. And if you want to come to the Heartland Pagan Festival and see me... I am doing a giveaway for a ticket worth $150. So all you have to do is go onto my Instagram. There is going to be a post on Monday the 20th. Uh, I think it's going to be about 9am Eastern Standard Time. Just because I wanted to try and get it at a point of the day where a lot of people could, could get to it. And what I want you to do, I'm letting you know in advance... Because the people who listen to the podcast, you know, you, I make this for you. And I would love you to come see me. And if you're in the area, it would be amazing. But yes, the post is going to go up Monday, 9am Eastern Standard Time. And it's going to be the giveaway post. I'm letting you know in advance because you guys deserve to know first. So yes, on Instagram, 9am, Monday the 20th of March. I, I forgot which month it was, at 9am Eastern Standard Time, and it's going to be like and comment. I mean, you can share if you like, I wouldn't say no, because it's always good for exposure, but like, comment, and it's going to be like your favourite woman from history. But for a podcast followers, for my podcast followers, you're going to get a double dip into the draw. Because anyone who adds the code word five into their sentence... They will be sent and they will get a double dip into the draw. So you're going to get two chances to win. And I'm going to say, you know, listeners of the podcast will know. Just to give you the extra opportunity because you deserve it. Because I love you and you're amazing. And I suppose it should, I should actually get to the end of this because it's been over an hour of me ranting. Yes. Okay. So we have our recommendations. My recommendations because it's all me. So I'm going to recommend reading, listening, watching. For reading, for reading, we have Bad Bridget. I think it's based off a, a podcast that I haven't actually listened to, but the book is very good. It's about Irish diaspora and Irish immigrants over in America, women, by the way, and it's, it's fab because it is Women's History Month after all. And also Irish American Heritage Month, so go read on that. For listening, I am going to recommend any of the Kaiser Chiefs album. I've been re-listening to the Kaiser Chiefs and oh man, I forgot how good Learnt My Lesson Well was. Like I was, I couldn't sleep and I started listening to it with my earbuds in at like 9am this morning. Oh, it was so good. Just, just everything about it just filled me with, I don't know. Not quite joy, but something good. It was very fun. And for watching. You know what? If you haven't seen. 
everything everywhere all at once which i saw in the cinema and then had to try and explain to a bunch of girls who were also in the cinema because they didn't get it and i'm like it's not a difficult concept but that's not the point honestly watch it it's it's fucking amazing it deserves all the awards it won it's fabulous and with that i'm going to bid you adieu so au revoir adios of we my friends bye bye <laughs>